Morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Is that all right? That's all right, isn't it? That's good. Uh, story of Daniel. It's a, uh, it's a really good story. It's one of my favorites. It's a great book, isn't it? So um, we've been looking at the last few weeks. Um, so we're just going to look at some verses from chapter six today. I'll say some verses. We're going to read through chapter six. We're going to read through... Um, if you've got a Bible, great, because we're going to refer back to some verses as well. So um, it's, uh, it's good to have something handy you can just refer back to. Uh, but I'm just going to read chapter 6 to us first. Headed up, Daniel in the lion's den. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the, window opened to, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and make, made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you can serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment brought to him. And he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. 
Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So um, one of my hobbies is reading. I love reading, love a good book, like to have a book on the go all the time. And one of the books I read recently was by an author called Ian McEwen. You've probably read some of his books. He's, read quite, he's uh, written quite a, quite a few, probably best known as Atonement, which was made into a film. Um, so the book I read recently, and some of you might have read this, I'm sort of banking that maybe quite a few of you haven't. Um, book I read recently was a book called Solar. And the book's to do with this physicist um, called Michael Beard, and he's very highly respected in his own field, and he's won the Nobel Prize for his research, but he's not a pleasant man. He's not a very nice man. He's got lots of what we might call baggage in his life. So he's, uh, he's a womanizer, which has led him coming to the end of his fifth marriage um, at the time of the book. I know five. Partway through the novel, one of the other things he's struggling with, he's struggling with his weight, and he's very self-conscious, he's putting on a lot of weight, but he's got a real weakness for crisps. Specifically, salt and vinegar crisps. So he gets off a flight one day, and he's got to go and get a train. So before he goes to the train, he goes and buys himself a packet of salt and vinegar crisps. So he gets onto the train, and he sits back as you do. He finds a seat. It's a busy train, but he finds a seat. And he sits back and he relaxes and he, he closes his eyes and he just enjoys this moment. And he's enjoying the moment because he's savouring that he's going to get to enjoy his packet of salt and vinegar, Chris, really soon. And he opens his eyes and he starts eating this packet of crisps. And he takes that first crisp and puts it in his mouth and savours the delight of that first crisp. And then the man who's sitting opposite him reaches over and helps himself to a crisp. And he's frozen for a moment. He's, he's angry. He's angry, one, for the sense that somebody's stealing his crisps because he wants his crisp. But he's also angry at the sheer nerve of this man to reach over and help himself to a crisp. And he doesn't quite, he doesn't quite know what to do. So he reaches in and he picks out two crisps and he eats those. And the man's still staring at him, right in the eyes, staring at him like this. You know, it'd make you feel uncomfortable, wouldn't it? And he reaches over and he takes two crisps as well. And this continues until the packet's empty. 
Now, he doesn't quite know what to do because he, he's, he's an older man uh, and this younger guy is quite big. It's a bit intimidating, so he doesn't really know how to confront him. But he does notice that this man's got a bottle of water in front of him, unopened. So what do you think he does? So he ponders for a moment, reaches over, grabs the water, unscrews it, downs the lot, and flings it onto the table. As if, there you go, have some of that. And the man just stares at him again, and the train pulls into the station, and it's Michael's stop, so he needs to get off, so he gets ready to go. And this man knows what Michael's bag is that he's put on the shelf, so he reaches up and grabs the bag, and then just sort of gently puts it by his feet which is almost a, you know, Michael thinks, oh, it's some sort of passive-aggressive gesture that he's making. So he quickly grabs the bag and he gets off the train and he stood on the platform and he's, he's feeling it a bit and he's a little bit worried, he's a bit nervous, he's a bit shaken by the whole thing. So he heads towards the ticket barrier, goes to get his ticket and finds his packet of salt and vinegar crystals still in his pocket. So, not only has he eaten this man's packet of salt and vinegar crisps that he mistook for his own, so he's eaten his entire snack, this man has then got his luggage down for him so he can get off the train. And he stands there feeling awful about it. Now, there's lots of words you could use to describe that type of behavior. Maybe erratic would probably be a good one. There's nothing positive to come out of this situation. As you can, if you read the book, though, you'll realize that a moment like that, where he's got everything completely wrong, and his reaction to that is a result of his behavior. It's the type of man he is. It's the type of person that he is. So what I want you to remember this morning is predictable behavior leads to predictable outcomes. I'll say that again. Predictable behavior leads to predictable outcomes. Now, I want you to look and think about the word predictable in the context of being dependable. And actually, predictability being a positive word. Perhaps it's not always a positive word. It might be seen as a bit of a negative word sometimes. But let's look at it in the context of wanting to do the best thing before God and being dependable. Let's start by looking at Daniel. So as we've been looking at the story of Daniel over the past few weeks, it feels like quite a lot's happened. So Martin talked last week about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the, with the furnace. So King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king in charge at that point, he's been replaced by King Belshazzar, get that right, who was subsequently killed. And now we have King Darius, who's in charge of the kingdom. So Daniel himself, he's been serving the Babylonian Empire for decades now, been a long, long time. So he's probably, if you want to picture him, he's probably about 70 to 80 years old at this stage. He's very well respected. He's a smart guy. He's good looking. And we, we know that. We know he's highly respected because of all the verses around. And if, if you look back a couple of chapters before, um, he interprets a dream, which was when Nebuchadnezzar was the king. So we know this whole succession of kings really respects Daniel for who he is. And we know from some of those early verses that we've looked at today in the passage that we've got a lot of people trying to, for want of a better phrase, bring him down because they're jealous of him. And they're trying really, really hard to try and find something to bring him down with. 
I remember watching a courtroom, a courtroom drama film a few years ago, and the, uh, the prosecuting lawyer is looking for something to break the credibility of a psychiatrist who's going to testify in terms of the defence. And he just turns around to his team and he says, I don't care what you find, just get me something that I can shatter him in court. And it reminds me of this. I can imagine these people saying, like, we don't care what you find, we don't care what we find, we just need something to bring Daniel down. But they can't. They can't find anything. We can see in these verses that they're looking for something and they can't find a single thing. The only thing they can think of is something is to do with something that Daniel is known for, which is his faith in God. They know, they know without fail that Daniel will put his God above his king. So they appeal to the vanity of the king. Why do they know this? Why do they know this about Daniel? Because we can see Daniel prayed three times a day. He was regular. He was predictable. He was consistent. He was dependable. And they knew this. They absolutely knew this. We can see from verse 10 that he prayed in a room that opened out to Jerusalem. Now, try and picture that in your mind a little bit of what that might look like back in however many years ago this was of what that would look like. This, I, I can just imagine this, this room, this window, this opening, looking out onto the city of Jerusalem, and Daniel deliberately, probably, praying there. In other words, anyone who looked over that way could have seen him praying. He wasn't trying to hide what he was doing. Even though this decree had been issued, he wasn't trying to hide at all what he was doing. He was quite happy to be seen praying dependably, predictably, three times a day. Probably, if he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have been arrested. Probably, if he had prayed in a different place where he wasn't being overlooked, he probably wouldn't have been arrested. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from Daniel's predictability here, I think. Maybe we could even try and copy some of his behaviours. Perhaps we think of having a very regimented set time to read our Bible or to pray is a bit too religious, a bit too regimented, a bit too stuck. But the thing is, Daniel knew what he was doing was spiritually fruitful. He knew that. And we can see that because of the type of man he was. Katie, my wife, decided at Christmas time that she wanted to read the Bible in a year. It's a common thing. Lots of people do. She thought, you know what? I want to do it. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. Now, she's tried to do this before, and she's reached about her birthday with it, which is in early February. So she's not got too far before. End of July, she's still going. Still going strong with it. It's predictable behavior from her because she knows the importance of it. Now, there's a reason why Christians, followers of Jesus, talk about why reading the Bible and praying is so important. Because it's an inescapable fact that doing these things are crucial in strengthening our relationship with God. 
Maybe I can challenge everyone here this morning, everyone watching online. And when I say challenge you, I mean challenge me, most certainly, to remember that. Because I think sometimes we're prone to shortcuts that we sort of know in our minds that reading the Bible and praying, it is important, but maybe we could do other things as well. We try to do shortcuts to actually miss out those things which are most essential. Now, I've got real memory when I, Michael Chitty, who um, many of you know, who came to this church and um, went to live in Spain years and years ago. Um, he, uh, when I first went out to visit him, which was a long time ago, actually, I was 18 at the time, I went out to visit him. He'd only been out in Spain a few years. And I met his two aunts at the time, Heather and Elaine, who are sadly no longer with us. And Michael took uh, us along to a Bible study that he used to hold every week. And that they really, they really tried to impress upon me, the 18-year-old me um, and uh, the other people I was with, the importance of reading the Bible. Uh, now, they challenged themselves with predictable behavior to read the Bible every six months. So they would read the whole Bible through twice a year. Okay. And you really knew it from them. You really knew it from the, from the people they were. Everyone who's met them before as well will, will, will know this. You, know, you really knew it from the type of people that they were. Kind, godly, generous, dependable. Predictable behaviors leading to predictable outcomes. Now, I know, you know, possibly reading the whole Bible in six months is a challenge for a lot of people. You know, I might suggest that to Katie once she's finished this. <laughs> Try to push her a bit more next year. You know, maybe like, I'd, I'd, for me, it's probably like read the Bible in eight years or something like that. You know, that would be more like it, you know. Um, but for different people, it's different. And let me say this, if you don't read the Bible at all now, why not challenge yourself to read a little bit? Maybe you're not even going to be reading the Bible every single day. But why not challenge yourself to read a little bit? There's loads of good resources to help. There's loads of people in this church that can help give good advice on that. Because it's daunting. Where do you start sometimes? There's lots of people that can help, though. You need to think of it maybe like one of those couch to 5K running plans, you know, with people who are completely unfit and want to get up to be a, a 5K runner. So maybe you could challenge yourself to move from that couch to 5K, so you're actually a lean 5K runner in Bible reading terms anyway. Maybe if you do read the Bible a bit, maybe challenge yourself to read it a bit more. Because, you know, the great thing about the Bible is when you read it, you're not wasting time. It's never wasted time when you're reading the Bible. Maybe you want to challenge yourself, if you do read the Bible quite a bit, to be more, if we're going to stick with a running analogy, be more like a marathon runner with that. Selwyn Hughes, that great writer of the Everyday with Jesus Bible Notes, um, he talked about ingesting the Bible, about almost to the point of like not physically eating it. I don't recommend that. It's not a good idea. But ingesting the Bible and the words and the message and everything so much that it just becomes a part of you in what you do. But I want to come back to Daniel as well, because the question I want to ask everyone today is when you think about the story of Daniel, what is it that you think about? Just take a second to think. What is it you think about with the story of, of Daniel? What's the big moment that stands out? 
his faith. Anyone else? Trust. Integrity, prayer. Yeah. See, the big thing for me that stands out is the fact that Daniel was thrown into this pit of lions, if you want to imagine. It probably was like a pit, big hole in the ground probably, full of lions. lions. We, we took the girls to a zoo a couple of weeks ago and there were some lions there and I wouldn't have fancied getting in the cage with them, really. It's, it's astonishing when you think of that. Let's not take away anything from that at all, the fact that Daniel was in this pit full of big, hungry lions and was completely unharmed because God stopped the lions from harming him. That is amazing. It's a miracle. We can see what happens later in the chapter, verse 24, when Daniel's accusers are thrown into the pit as well. What happens to them? Actually says their bones were crushed before they hit the floor. These are the lions we're talking about. They're lions. But let me ask you this. If the story had stopped before... If the story had stopped once Daniel had been thrown into the pit of lions and we knew nothing else, how differently would we look on that, maybe? Maybe you wouldn't look on it differently at all. Possibly there's actually a lot that you've taken up to that point um, that you would take away. Does it make a difference, though, to you, thinking about that? If we didn't know what happened to Daniel, if we had to assume that he probably was killed, or... If the story went on to say that because of Daniel's actions, he was thrown into that pit and he was killed by the lions. Does that make you look at the story any differently at all? Because the point of the story actually is a challenge. And Martin asked exactly the same question last week when we had exactly a very similar situation with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Martin said, what happens if they were thrown into the furnace and they didn't survive? They weren't supernaturally protected by God. Actually, they were thrown in and they were burnt to death. We know that they specifically said, we believe our God can deliver us from this, but if he doesn't, that's okay, essentially, is what they said. We don't know that Daniel said something similar, but from looking at his character, I can imagine that he quite possibly did. So I think sometimes it's good to look at this story from a little bit of a different vantage, more from the point of view of how his predictable behavior in pursuing his relationship with God actually could conceivably have led to his death. We've got to think of it in terms of not just with the people that we know within this church and the people that we know within Hawley, but thinking of Christians worldwide How many followers of Jesus are thrown into their own metaphorical pit of lions? Probably every day. When I talk about predictable behaviours leading to predictable outcomes, it's not in some sense of a self-help guide into how we live. It's not a self-help guide in terms of how we can be prosperous, healthy, happy, all with God at our side all the time. That's not what it's about, actually. What it's about is challenging ourselves to walk closer with God, no matter what. That was what Daniel saw as so important and why 
he was so predictable and regular and dependable with his behaviors. See, God does promise us that he will be with us no matter what. So it doesn't matter what happens, but he will be with us. Uh, I want to finish, actually, by reading a, um, reading a tribute to um, Nicky Gumbel. Um, and I, saw, I think, Fiona, you shared it on Facebook as well. Um, so some people may have seen this. So Nicky Gumbel is the, um, uh, or he was, he stepped down as the vicar at Holy Trinity Brompton and the founder of the Alpha Course as well. Um, and this is um, Pete Gregg, who's the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement. He, he wrote this, and I thought it fits in quite well, actually, with what we've been looking about at this morning, without the lions involved. But this is part of what he wrote. Um, he said, this weekend, my friend and mentor, Nicky Gumbel, preaches for the last time as leader of Holy Trinity Brompton in London. It's a moment worth marking because Nicky and Pippa, his wife, have served the Lord faithfully with integrity, without any hint of scandal, with extraordinary effectiveness and kindness for almost 50 years. And if, like me, you're exhausted, exhausted, heartbroken, disillusioned, and disappointed by the litany of leaders letting us down, it's worth celebrating those who really didn't. The simple facts of Nicky Gumbel's long obedience in the same direction are remarkable. 48 years following Jesus since turning from atheism to Christianity at Cambridge University in 1974. 44 years married to Pippa, raising two sons, a daughter, and a throng of grandchildren. 36 years in ministry at one single church, 19 of them as its curate, and then as its vicar since 2005. Growing Holy Trinity Brompton to one of the most influential churches in the UK in helping to plant a network of new and revived churches around the nation. 32 years quietly running his own Alpha small group every week, whilst turning the course into a global resource that has introduced literally millions to Jesus and has also become a major catalyst for Christian unity. 30 plus years reading the scriptures daily, working through the entire Bible every year, making personal notes as he did so, until eventually those reflections became a daily email in 2009, which has gone on to become one of the most downloaded devotionals in the world. These numbers speak of faithfulness over decades and fruitfulness in the millions. He says, for seven years I served as part of uh, Nikki and Pippa's senior leadership team. We'd meet for hours every week, mostly in their living room. We laughed a lot, wept occasionally, talked and prayed. It was one of the steepest learning curves and greatest privileges of my life. I'll just read one bit more from it. It says, every Tuesday morning, I would lead a prayer meeting for HTV at 7 a.m. It was not a large gathering, mostly people in suits on their way to work and well-heeled retirees. But these were the quiet saints of the church. It was one of the least glamorous, lowest profile meetings we did. And two of its most faithful members were Nikki and Pippa. Some of the busiest people I know, they were never there to lead, only always to pray. It would have been easy and so understandable if they'd said, look, Pete, we're with you in spirit, but we're very busy. Do you mind if we pray with you from home? Or I'm afraid we have a meeting with the Archbishop of Bolivia. Or unfortunately, the Bible in one year is keeping us occupied before breakfast on Tuesdays and a million people are awaiting our thoughts. But instead, they were there without fail, quietly praying for the church, for Alpha, for the nation, before slipping away out of the side door to apologize to the Archbishop of Bolivia. 
Now, it struck me as being almost a modern type of Daniel, that. And he goes on to talk about how Nicky Gumbel wouldn't have wanted any of that fuss and things like that. But the point of Daniel is to look at his dependable, predictable behaviours. And we can see that with a modern-day version of Nicky Gumbel, somebody who has dedicated his life to simply being dependable and doing those things that he knows are really, really important. I'm pretty sure that Nicky Gumbel, that Daniel, other people like him, would not have reacted like Michael Beard in that story with the packet of crisps. I'm pretty sure they would have had a different reaction. So let's take an example from these people. And let's try and be more predictable, more consistent, and more dependable. What does dependable mean to you? How can we make sure we are looked on as dependable people? When it comes to predictable behaviours lead to predictable outcomes, how can we make sure that our predictability is positive, good and faithful? What changes can you make to try and read your Bible more and pray more? Can you set yourself a challenge 